a privilege for me to be able to bring you all the word of the Lord this morning. Really excited to preach God's word to you all in fellowship with you. And our text this morning, as you can see, is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And the point of this text is simply this. Those who look to Christ as he has revealed himself in his word respond to the Savior with great love and affection for him. That's the point. It's about Christ and how he's revealed himself in his word. And what I want to do with this text is show three main things. First, we're going to look at the love of Christ by seeing what Jesus is like, how he treats people, how he treats sinners, and even his enemies. And then I want us to see the appearances or the false appearances of love, not just from Simon the Pharisee, but also in our day today by looking at legalism and antinomianism. And then third and finally, I want, to see what, I want us to see what sincere love looks like from the redeemed sinner. But before we look at the text in detail, I want to share with you all my testimony. My name is Brandon Ash. I am 31 years old. My wife is Abby, sitting in the back rocking our son to sleep. Um, we have two beautiful boys, Lamar and Carter, and I love them dearly. Uh, I grew up in West Montgomery. Um, and if you've been in Montgomery for any significant amount of time, you know that that's a very, very rough area of town. When I was 13, um, the most significant thing in my life, other than meeting my wife and coming to Christ, happened to me. And it was, my mother was shot and murdered right in front of me one day after my birthday um, as an innocent bystander. And what that did was it hardened my heart. But this was par for the course in the projects, right? Murder, stealing, violence, that was just par for the course. And so it really turned me into a very hard individual. Um, I had been expelled three times from school by the time I was 15. Thankfully, I had a good grandmother who told me to go get my GED, and I later went to college, thankfully, where I met my wife. Um, um, I joined a gang, I sold drugs. Uh, I had no authority, really. My grandmother did her best, but she could only do so much. I had no timetable to be home. You know, at 14, 15 years old, I stayed out as long as I wanted to which is not wise or safe for anybody. Um, but when I was 20, the Lord saw fit to save me. And I have no idea why other than his grace. And I'm thankful for that. And he's put many people in my life to help disciple and encourage me in the faith because I did not deserve it. In fact, when I was taught the doctrine of total depravity for the first time because of the lifestyle that I live, I had no problem believing it because I knew I did not seek after Christ. He certainly came and got me. And I share that testimony, brothers and sisters, to just convey a message that I indulge deeply in sins, deeply. And I share that for two reasons. One, so that you all can get to know me better, as I hope to get to know as many of you as possible uh, while I'm at this church as members of the same local body. But the second and most important reason is because I want to help dispel a common error with this text, and that's an error called antinomianism, which simply means anti-law or a person who is lawless, someone who doesn't think they need to keep God's commandments for any reason. So the logic of the antinomian goes like this. It comes from verse 47 when, it's, when Christ declares, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And so the logic goes, the deeper you have indulged in your sins, the greater your forgiveness. And the greater your forgiveness, 
the greater your love for Christ. You see that? That's the logic. But here's why that's an error. Because if that were true, brothers and sisters, then what you would have to do to grow in your love for Christ would to be what? To disobey. It would be a contradiction. It would mean that Christ is actually commanding and teaching the very things that he commands and teaches. I'm sorry, contradicting what he commands and teaches elsewhere in Scripture. And so what they say is that, well, brother, you have such great love for Christ. I've had people tell me this. I wish I had your testimony so that I can have great love for Jesus. What a testimony you have. But that's not the grounds or the means by which we come to love Christ. It's by looking to Christ. Indulging in sin will not get you greater love for Jesus. We don't rumspringer in the Christian faith. And so, I've even had people tell me, brother, I wish that my children had the testimony. Brother, my last church told me this. I wish they had your testimony. But that's a very unloving thing, isn't it? Why in the world would God command fathers to raise their kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord if his will was for them to live a testimony like mine? It doesn't make sense. But people hold to this foolishly. And our Savior, brothers and sisters, is not a contradiction. He doesn't instruct us to do the very thing. Um, but he doesn't contradict his commandments that he gives us elsewhere. He doesn't instruct us to sin that we can love more. And we see that in his love for us. So let's look first, brothers and sisters, at our first point, the love of Jesus. And to better understand this text, we're going to look around at different verses from different viewpoints. We're going to look at the same, I'm sorry, the same verses from different viewpoints. And to determine someone's love, you must first look at what they are like. And so how does Jesus reveal his love by what he does in this text? Well, brothers and sisters, we'll see that Christ is approachable, that he is gentle, and that he is a kind Savior. Let's look first at how Christ is approachable. Please look, at, look with me at verse 36 starting our text in Luke chapter 7. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him. Now one of the characteristics of the Gospel of Luke is that he does a really good job of structuring both this letter and the letter in the book of Acts to the person he was writing it to in Theophilus. And he makes sure to mention a key description about this woman twice in this text. Verses 37 and 39. She is a sinner. We don't know her name. We don't know her origins. That's all he gives us. Some have speculated that this is Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman who had demons cast out of her, but she's not introduced into our text until Luke chapter 7, verse 2. So this couldn't be her. Some have even speculated that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, because we see in Matthew 26 and John chapter 12, when we combine both those gospels, that she also anointed Christ's feet and wiped them with her hair. But here's why that can't be the case. There are key distinctives in that instance and in ours. In that instance, 
She does wipe his feet with her hair, but she also anoints his head, not just his feet. Also, the Simon in that instance is a leper, not a Pharisee. Also, John 12 tells us that in that instance, there were six day, it was six days before the Passover that preceded the death of Christ. This happens, our text in Luke happens much earlier in the ministry of Christ. And so what I suspect is this story of this sinful woman was told repeatedly because this was a very polarizing act. And so maybe it's that Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, maybe she caught wind of it and simply repeated such a worshipful and Christ-honoring action herself. But this is not the same woman. Luke doesn't tell us here who this woman is. He very intentionally, I believe, tells us only that she is a sinner. And this is significant because I believe when this woman comes to Christ, she, and literally pours her love on Jesus, I think that she's a Christian at this point. I think the Holy Spirit through Luke intends to convey specifically that this woman was publicly known as a sinner. Most likely she was a prostitute of some kind, but we don't want to speculate. But if she had a reputation like this and she wasn't a criminal, she probably was a prostitute in that day because they would have not dealt with a criminal, a thief or something like that in that way. But it's for sure Luke is trying to convey her current social, social standing was that of a reprobate someone who was considered an outcast, someone who was considered unworthy of any kind of affection that wasn't negative. She was a sinner. But what does Christ do? He allows her to come. Brother, this is how Christ, brothers and sisters, this is how Christ shows his love for us and for this sinful woman. He allows us to come. Christ was famous by this point. He was known as a prophet by some, a great teacher. He had something to lose from a public perspective in his ministry. Why would Christ allow this woman to engage him in such an affectionate, public, open manner? It's because he is approachable. She felt comfortable going to the Savior. J.C. Ryle, an English Anglican minister from the 19th century, he is responsible for the classic work, Holiness. He speculates that this woman heard the great call of Christ in Matthew 28 through 30. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And what does Christ promise? He promises rest. We don't know that for sure, but we certainly know that she had come to trust and believe in Christ as her Savior when she comes and engages him in such an affectionate manner because of Christ's great call. He welcomes sinners, brothers and sisters, all kinds of sinners. He says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And this is significant and good news for us today. This is how Jesus shows his love by allowing us to come, wanting us to approach him. Think about this. Christ knows the very worst about you, and he still says, come. He knows your secret sins. He knows your, the sins that you may have indulged in this previous week. And he still says, come. Our Savior is approachable. And if you are an unbeliever today, this is what Jesus is like. He welcomes you. He offers you free rest from your sins and the burden of carrying your own struggles in this life. And he also offers you eternal sanctuary in himself if you would come. Why wouldn't you go to Jesus? Go to Christ today with your sins. 
But as you go to Christ, understand this. He is gentle. And that's our second point, and this, that's our second characteristic of his love. We see that Christ is gentle. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is the only description in the Bible in which, Christ gives, in which Christ gives of his own heart. He says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. The Savior, the God of all the universe is gentle and lowly of heart. We see this in how Christ deals with this sinful woman. The acceptable, thing, acceptable cultural thing to do would be to push her away. Christ did not have to indulge her in this affectionate public manner. It would have been very acceptable for him to just push her away and not allow her to engage him in this way. But Christ doesn't do that. Rather, he approves of her behavior as he reprimands Simon the Pharisee in verses 44 through 46. And then he gives her a public stamp of approval in verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. Christ was very careful to do this. This woman was a public disaster, but Jesus here uses his authority to restore her in a spirit of gentleness. He was not an authoritarian. He did not bully her into following him. He did not shame her. He could have called out all of her sins in that crowd, and nobody would have batted an eye. He did not do that. He was careful by pronouncing, your sins are forgiven. He was not harsh. He was gentle, and how can this be? This is how God shows his love, brothers. Christ became a man so that he can be gentle with us. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ became a man. God, the all-powerful God, who his holiness is irreproachable, he would crush us if Christ had not become a man. He cannot tolerate evil or sinfulness, but Christ became a man for you and for, for, you and for me so that he can be gentle with us, so that he can be careful with us when we sin against him. God is even gentle with us in discipline. Have you considered that? His discipline, according to Hebrews 12.10, is so that we can share in his holiness, which, is, which means simply that his, holy, his discipline for us is not wrathful. His discipline is always instructive. That's gentleness, because the correction of the unbeliever for all of eternity will not be gentle. It will be wrathful in hell for all of eternity. But if you are in Christ, it is gentle. He is careful with you because of Christ's atoning work. The Father is gentle with us only in Christ. He isn't harsh, because that's not what harsh people are like, are they? What are harsh people like? They're legalistic. Do it yourself. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and keep going. It's not as bad as you think. That's what harsh people are like. But that's not what Christ does here. He doesn't do that. He is gentle to forgive her sins. He covered her sins in love because he was going to die on a cross for her sins. And so if you struggle with harshness, sometimes maybe with your spouse or with your kids, look to Jesus and die to yourself and follow his example here. Brothers and sisters, the currency of the Christian response to sin against us is both justice and mercy. Christ takes on 
the wrath of sin justly, to, to, to appease the justice of God so that he can show mercy to us. We should be merciful to, for, to those who sin against us if we were to be like the Savior. And this is how Christ shows his kindness to the sinful woman. That's our third characteristic of his love. We see the kindness of Christ in that he actually forgives her sins. Jesus does not simply indulge her actions for public consumption. This piece of history has eternal consequences. He redeems her from her many sins yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Christ's love and forgiveness of this sinful woman led to her repentance. That's an important point. The Bible, brothers and sisters, called that the kindness of God. Romans 2, 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Jesus is kind towards all who call upon his name for salvation. He promises he will forgive your sins. Go to the Savior. And so how do we apply this? Think with me about a parent. Not thinking about any specific parent, maybe myself more than anybody. Think about a mother or a father who regularly, who regularly deals with a child in a harsh manner for disobedience. Maybe it's not even disobedience. Maybe it's just some man-made standard that they, this parent has created in their own hearts. And when this child cannot live up to this task, they are harsh with them. Do better. Clean your room better. Clean your room faster. They're harsh with this child. And what this does is causes this child to reluctantly go to this parent. And so maybe this child begins to engage in secret sin because they cannot go with sincere affections to this parent because of how they're treated with harshness. But then this parent remembers what Jesus is like and how Christ is never harsh with them. In fact, the well of his love never runs dry with grace and mercy towards his people. And when they come, and even if they come reluctantly, he always forgives them. And he always welcomes them in a spirit of gentleness. And he is always kind, reassuring them that their sins are forgiven. And they're this person, with, this parent with great conviction repents of their sins, maybe even with weeping. They are grief-stricken because of how they see how the Savior treats them, and it doesn't match how they treat, they've treated the child. And there they go to this child with repentance, and they say, please forgive me, for we both need Christ to cover our sins. Brothers and sisters, that is the proper response to seeing what Jesus is like. He is approachable. He is gentle, and he is kind. Let's look at our second point, the appearance of love. Look again with me at verse 36. It says, a Pharisee had invited Christ into his home. Now, the, the relationship between the Pharisees and Christ to this point was not good. In fact, the Pharisees had set themselves up as enemies of Christ by this point. Starting in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through Luke chapter 6, verse 10, you don't have to turn there, it's a lot of scripture, we see Christ heal a paralytic and forgive his sins. We see Christ preach the gospel. He fellowships with his disciples. He heals a man, on, and he heals a man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees in the same time accused Christ of blasphemy, of law-breaking, not being pious as they were, 
being a friend of sinners, and specifically breaking the Sabbath. And by chapter 6, verse 11, they had had enough of the Savior. It says that they were filled with fury and disgust how discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They were enemies when this Pharisee, Simon, invited Christ into his home. But there's nothing in our text to indicate that Simon the Pharisee felt as strongly or was among that group who want, of the Pharisees who wanted to do, to do harm for Christ. In fact, I would characterize him as a skeptic. He's skeptical but curious about who Jesus really is. I would... I, he, he wanted to verify, at the very least, Christ's perceived shortcomings. Was his colleague, were his colleagues correct about who they, who they said Jesus was? But Christ uses his curiosity to unearth the nature of his heart and his false hospitality. Please look with me at verses 40 through 43. It says, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for him, the one I suppose whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Christ is here setting a clear picture for Simon the Pharisee, and he's doing so quite, quite intentionally. The illustration is plain, and the conclusion is easily attainable. The larger the debt that is being canceled will produce the greatest amount of gratitude and love. And Simon correctly responds, but in doing so, he unknowingly pronounced judgment on himself. And we saw, we've seen this style of teaching before, right, with Nathan and David. Nathan went to David with a story of a, a, a man with great possession and a story of, great of a great abuse of power. And David was so blinded by his secret sin that he failed to see the comparisons and the similarities in the story that Nathan told with his own actions, which led to the subsequent murdering of Bathsheba after the affair. And after hearing this story, David only came to a conclusion that he had sinned after the famous words of Nathan, you are the man. And this speaks, brothers and sisters, to the type and anti-type relationship between Christ and David. Jesus here is the better king. He is a better king than David. Whereas David's sins led to death, suffering, and heartache for his people, Jesus endured death, suffering, and heartache so that his people could be saved from their sins. Christ is the better king. Using the same pedagogical method, we see Christ and we see why Christ is the master teacher. He turns this man's skeptical invitation into pharisaical open heart surgery. And so imagine this scene with me. Verse 36, they're reclining at table. And so just imagine sitting at a table, maybe on a back patio type, type of scene, where they're probably sitting further away from a table than you would expect at a dinner party or something like that. Maybe they were even standing around the table. And this woman of bad repute walks in, weeping. So much water is coming from her eyes that she has enough to literally clean the feet of Christ. 
and she is wiping them with her hair, drying them with her hair. She takes out expensive ointment and, and pours on his feet, and perfume fills the room. And while they reclined at table in this day, there would have been an audience behind watching the whole thing unfold. And so Simon has an audience, but so does Christ. And he uses it to unearth the false humility of Simon. And he drives the point home in verses 44 through 47 by publicly declaring that this woman whom Simon had just declared to be a sinner had greater love than he did. Listen to the contrast in verse 44. You invited me into your home, but did not offer water for my feet. Brothers and sisters, this was a normal custom in that day of hospitality. But this woman has literally used herself to welcome me. Verse 45, you have not greeted me with a respectful kiss. It was a sign of respect to give a kiss on the cheek to a respected person coming into your home. It was an even greater sign to kiss their hand, a sign of respect to kiss their hand. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet as a sign of gratitude, love, and respect. Verse 46, you have not blessed me by anointing my head with oil. Olives would have been in abundance. They would have been very cheap in this day. But she has used possibly a year's worth of wages simply to anoint my feet. And don't miss this. Christ does not care about the cultural signs of hospitality in this day, which, you know, if you didn't do them, it wasn't a sign, a sign of sin in and of itself. He's doing heart surgery. He's showing the difference in the sincere affections of this sinful woman and the false pretenses of the Pharisee who was dead in his sins. And then Christ rips the mask off of Simon in verse 46. He says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is little loves, who is forgiven little, loves little. And this is the point of our text, brothers and sisters, and the true meaning of the illustration. The Pharisee who had great sin was self-deceived, believing he had little to no sins to be forgiven. And therefore, his affections for Christ were surface level at best. He did, in fact, invite him into his home, but his heart was not for Christ. But this woman, this sinful woman, whose sins were many, had great, deep affections for Jesus because she recognized two things that the Pharisee did not. Her sins were great, and her need for a Savior was greater. And that's how we dispel the era of antinomianism. That's how we grow in our love for Jesus Christ, by seeing our great need for him, is to press into Christ by faith. If you grow up, if you grew up in the church and you often feel apathetic spiritually, it is not because you need a stronger testimony or to indulge in sin greater, in a greater capacity. It is not to go off and live like the prodigal son so that you can feel your love for Jesus more. It is to press into Christ by faith. It is to look to him as he has revealed himself in Scripture. It is not to covet a sinful past. It is to look at the great inheritance that you have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ in himself. You are co-heirs. You have all things in Christ through him if you are united to him. You do not need to indulge in sins. That is lawlessness. You need to press into the Savior. And we see lawlessness all over our society. We see it in the church. What do you see? What do you hear antinomians say? Grace, 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 it's all of grace. Don't you want grace? 
Don't tell me to do good works in Christ's name, even though Hebrews, I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, Christ, God the Father, God prepared good works before the foundation of the world for you. Christ himself also says, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. But the battle cry of the antinomian is what? Free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. But that's not what Christ teaches. Christ calls us to keep his commandments out of sincere hearts. Another error associated with this text is that of legal love. We see this mostly in the Roman Catholic Church. They some teach and still argue that this woman had added to her salvation by showing Christ such great love. And it's evidence when Jesus says, for her sins were many, I'm sorry, her sins are forgiven, for she loved much. See how they got the same error from the same text, both the antinomians and the legalists. Heresy always finds a way to misconstrue the truth. But the for here, brothers and sisters, is not a causal for, it's evidential. What that means is the for here is not the grounds for her salvation. It's the evidence that she has received it. And how do we know that? It's very simple. What does Christ say in his text, in this illustration to uh, Simon the Pharisee? He does not say, which debtor will prove to me their great love for me? He says, which one will love me more once I have canceled their debt? Brothers and sisters, atonement always precedes sanctification. Or what Christ does for us always precedes what we do for Christ. Never miss that. Christ is gracious. Christ also says in verse 50 that her faith has saved her. Not her love and affection for her, but her faith in him has saved her. And we know that faith is passively given to us by God. And so we must be aware of the dangers of misinterpreting the Bible. Because legalism does not come to us and say, let me put burden after burden after burden upon you. What does it say? It says, it has the appearance of love. It says, look at how God allows you to partake in your own salvation. You are co-heirs with Christ after all. Don't you want to partake in your own salvation? Isn't that so exciting? Take these sacraments and add to your faith. Do these works for final justification. Doesn't that seem more exciting? But that's false, brothers and sisters. God loves you too much to allow you to bear the burden of the law and sin for life because you can't. I can't. We need Christ. Antinomians don't come to you and say, let me walk you off the narrow path. They say, grace, grace, it's all grace. Don't you want grace? But church, God loves you too much to leave you in your former sins. If you are in the new covenant, then you have a new heart. You, not a perfect one yet, that's glory, but you have a new heart, which means you are still capable of sin, but you are also capable of great affection and love for Christ and his people. And this leads to my third and final point, what sincere love looks like from the redeemed. And we see three things mainly. The first point is, a repentant sinner worships with sincere affections. Sorry. Let's look again 
at verse 40, verses 44 through 46. This woman wasn't just giving Christ the culturally approved customs of hospitality. She went above what was due and ordinary to a mere man. Whereas Christ would have accepted water from his feet, for his feet, and a towel to dry them from Simon the Pharisee, she gave her own tears and hair. She didn't give him the acceptable kiss on the hand. She kissed his feet. She spared no expense with a year's worth of wages to perfume his feet. Notice where all of her actions were geared towards. Where were they directed? At the feet of Christ. This, brothers and sisters, was humble worship for what Christ was going to do on a cross for her, for Christ's authority and pronouncing forgiveness for her sins. She loved Jesus. And this should be our response to the forgiveness of Jesus. Repentance and humble worship from sincere hearts. John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Brothers and sisters, truth is just another way of saying worship him sincerely. Secondly, we see that a repentant sinner understands the completed work of Christ. And so why is this important? Because it honors Christ when we understand all that he has done for us and respond in obedience accordingly. What is evident in our text about this sinful woman is that her sins were great and her love for Christ was also great. And this proves that great love can follow great sin. But for the reason, but for the reason, but the reason for her love being so great was because she believed that her forgiveness was even greater than her sin. It had it had to be for her incredibly, incredibly comforting to hear Christ say publicly, your sins are forgiven. And don't miss the larger picture here of Christ's pronouncement, his authoritative pronouncement of forgiveness. It's a declaration that's forced, that foreshadows both Christ's messianic authority as the Christ, as well as his messianic reward as the keeper of the covenant of redemption. Jesus and the Father in eternity past agreed that Jesus would come and redeem a people of the Father's choosing by dying on a cross and rising from the dead for them. And the Father promised Christ's rewards once he had accomplished his task. Matthew 28:18 says, all authority on earth has been given to me. The given here implies that something, in this case authority, was bestowed or given to Christ by the Father. Christ has all authority because of his accomplishments in the of a king covenant of redemption. And he's been given all authority by the hand of the Father. And that means that Christ is our king. He commands as our king. He is to be obeyed with earnestness according to how he has commanded, not how we want him to command. That is important. Many Christians say, brothers, my motives were pure when I sinned. I didn't know. I didn't mean to. But if you have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, this is no excuse. If you've read any Christian ethics books, particularly Reformed Christian ethics, you'll see that there are three main ingredients to obedience. There's the goal of obedience, which is always the glory of God. Whether you eat or you drink, do all things for the glory of God. There is the motive of obedience, always from sincere hearts. But there's also the, the, the means or the God of obedience, according to what he commands as our king. 
Those three, three things encompass all of obedience. It is not enough to simply have good motives. You must follow Christ's word as he commands it because it's for your good. He is a good king, and he leads you to the paths of righteousness. He leads you to still waters. And so Christ has all authority. And this is how he reveals himself. He reveals himself as a savior of sin. He reveals himself as the savior from the world. He reveals himself as the savior from the devil, from the, from the flesh, from this world. That's how Christ has revealed himself. And we are to worship him according to this revelation. We are not to work for our salvation, but we are to throw ourselves upon Christ for salvation and make much of him in this life in both word and deed. We must understand his completed work. Third and finally, a repentant sinner lives a life of peace. Jesus says in verse 50, after bystanders scoffed at his verdict of forgiveness for this sinful woman, he says, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. And there are two practical ways as we close that you can live practical, and I, we can live practical Christian lives. One, first, we must understand that the gospel promises irrevocable love. When God forgives you of your sins, he does not go back on his word. Not only does he forgive you, he treats you as forgiven, always. Once you are a son, he will not treat you as a slave. That's why you can go to him. He is faithful. He is faithful when we are faithless. He cannot deny himself. You can have peace in your heart that even though we are mutable, we change, we sin against God, he will never sin against us. Always understand that the gospel promises irrevocable love. And secondly, we can live peaceful lives as Christians by applying the ordinary means of grace that he has given us in this life to grow in our faith and assurance. Reading our Bibles regularly, fellowshipping with the saints consistently, praying every day. Those are the things that nourish our faith. Joe Beakey, a pastor in Michigan and president of Puritan Theological Seminary, tells a story about a brother in his church who left a note for him. Urgent message, I need to meet with you. We need to talk. His brother had lost his assurance of faith. He, had no, he no longer believed that he was a Christian. And so after talking with this man for some time over the phone, Dr. Beakey discerned that this brother had lived a very busy life, doing good things, going to work, spending time with his family, working out, good, good things. But he had neglected the essential things of the, of the faith. He had stopped feeding his soul. And so what Dr. Beakey said is, give me a week, seven days, I want you to do three things. I want you to pray every day. I want you to read your Bible every day. And I want you to meditate on the word every day, just for seven days. He said, then come and see me. After seven days had passed, the, the brother had left a message for Dr. Beakey. I no longer need to meet with you. Simply by reading his word, praying, and meditating on the word, he had recovered his assurance of faith. He had an internal battle. He had no peace because he was not feeding his soul. He was certainly a Christian, but he was not feeding his soul and his assurance of faith had waned so much so that he did not think he was a Christian. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the power of reading the word by faith 
and prayer and fellowship and meditation and the means of grace that God has given us to nourish our faith in this life, do not underestimate the power that they have on us spiritually. So I encourage you, if you want to live peaceful lives, read your Bible, not legalistically, but by faith, because it is a means of grace, and it does nourish your faith, even if you can't feel it. And so there we have seen three things. We've seen the love of Christ. We've seen the false appearances of love. And we've seen what sincere love looks like from a redeemed, repentant sinner. May Christ allow us to go from this place with more sincere love in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for his cross. And we thank you that he is our king. But Father, we thank you that he has died for our sins that we may live a life of peace and of love, sincere love from our hearts for him and for one another. May we go from this place with more sincere hearts. In Christ's name, amen.